I would invite you to bow with me once more as we prepare to enter God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and that it is for us today. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak through your word, through me, your servant. I pray that these words would be yours and that you would speak to each heart exactly what you intend. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a father was away on a business trip, and he called home to see how his son's basketball game had gone. Now, this father knew that his son was struggling with basketball that season, and so he hoped that his phone call might encourage his son. And so Johnny comes to the phone, his mother hands it to him, and he tells his dad, Well, Dad, I finally made a basket today. And at this news, his father was excited. That's great. Did it help the team, Johnny? Well, Johnny answered, it was the winning point. Now Johnny's dad was ecstatic. That's wonderful, son. Your very first basket and you're a hero. That's incredible. Well, not exactly, dad, came Johnny's reply. You see, I made the basket in the wrong hoop. Now, have you ever had a time like that before? Honestly, maybe sports, it happened where you just made a big gaffe and it cost your team and you just felt like digging a hole and crawling in and never coming out. Has anyone ever had that happen before? I know I have. I think most of us have if you played any sports before. Maybe it's happened somewhere else, socially or in school, where you just really, really messed up and the failure was so obvious and public and there's the embarrassment that goes along with it. Perhaps in some other way, maybe more serious than just sports or socially, you failed in a really significant way that actually hurt people, that maybe hurt someone close to you. Maybe in work or or your employment, you failed so miserably that it made you just want to quit altogether. Well, if you've ever felt that way at any point in your life, You can rest assured that there are many others who have felt the same, and in fact, our main character that we've been studying these past weeks knows exactly how that feels, and that is, of course, Joshua. Now, in our last study in Joshua chapter 7, we saw how Achan's critical failure to obey God in regards to the devoted spoils of Jericho. He coveted some of them, he took them, he buried them in his tent, and this great sin that God had forbidden them to do led to Israel's first defeat in battle when they had headed into Canaan, their first defeat, the deaths of 36 of Israel's soldiers, and it led to subsequently the stoning to death of Achan along with his entire family. Terrible, devastating consequences. And so now Joshua, as the leader of Israel, he takes this failure personally, and it leaves him deeply discouraged. He's now fearful, and he voices to God back in chapter 7, that he's fearful that the Canaanites would hear of this humiliating defeat and would now band together to come and wipe their name off the face of the earth. Interesting side note there, there are still people who would love to wipe Israel's name off the face of the earth. Safe to say that Joshua is at his lowest point in this invasion. Since they've crossed the Jordan River, this is their first setback their first defeat, and Joshua is beside himself and he's pouring his worries and fears out to the Lord. Now, at this moment, if Joshua had decided to call it quits 
right then and there. That failure at AI would have defined him and his legacy forever. But I want you to take note of something in this regard when it comes to failure. Failure is only final if you give up. During the darkest days of World War II, while the Nazis were, were sieging the island of Britain with their Luftwaffe attacking every single day and night, during those dark days, Winston Churchill, in one of his famous speeches, said to the nation, Success is never final. Failure is never fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Now, for the Christian, there is a direct parallel to our spiritual lives here. Of course, our aim is to walk in victory over sin every single day through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us as we walk with the Spirit. But yet, even as we seek to live the victorious life by the power of the Spirit, yet we know our flesh is still weak. And in moments of weakness, we are still fully capable of giving in to temptation and sin. Now, when that happens, when we fail, when we fall flat, what we do next is up to us. And what we do next is critical. You see, we can live in that defeat, or we can wallow around in it in self-pity for as long as we like, or even go deeper into it. Or we can go to God. You see, here's something that I learned a long time ago. Our failures don't surprise God. Your failures don't surprise God. They don't shock him. He doesn't look at you when you've messed up and say, I can't believe you did that. I never saw this coming. In fact, throughout Scripture, we see example after example after example where God used people's failures, sometimes some big, terrible failures, one that you and I couldn't even begin to imagine failing that badly. And yet God takes those failures and turns them into something good. He knows what happens and he turns something good as a result. Now, of course, though we should never seek to fail, no one goes out saying, I hope to fail so God can turn something good out of this. That's not how we want to live. Nonetheless, failure can be a catalyst for success if we turn to God. So now from today's text in Joshua chapter 8, I want to point out for us five keys to turn failure into victory when we turn to God. Five keys that can turn even our most devastating failures into triumphs with the Lord. The first key is this, and it's the most obvious. When we fail, we must repent and turn to God. When we fail, we must repent. Now, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that there can be no forgiveness from God without genuine repentance for our sin. Now, to repent is more than just confession. Confess, pardon me, repent is to make a U-turn away from sin and towards God. Now, in this slide, we see the U-turn sign. Now, the U-turn is, of course, obvious. Most of the time, we see them on Main Street as no U-turns here, right? You're always looking for a place to make a U-turn. Well, when we're going the wrong way, God wants us to make a U-turn. Does anyone have those pesky GPSs where the voice is so politely saying, make a legal U-turn in 500 meters, right? And you just want to shut it off and throw it out the window? Well, when we mess up, when we sin, 
we are to repent, which means to turn around. Don't keep going in the wrong direction. And this is why the very first word in every sermon ever preached by John the Baptist was this one word, repent. Every sermon John ever preached started with that word. Likewise, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 tells us that Jesus, his very first sermons were the same as John. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Then later on, we see in the book of Acts, Peter continues in that same mold. Acts 3, verse 19, he says famously, Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Now, to repent is to turn around, and it's to actively seek to get rid of that sin in our life. So that means not just the sin itself, but the actions that led to that sin, the track that led us that way. We are to avoid that, to make changes, to not go back that way again. And we see very clearly that Joshua did just that with the sin of Achan. He took the Lord's command very seriously. And he purged the camp of Achan's sin, which included Achan himself and his entire family and all that he owned. While that may seem very harsh to us, it is a stark reminder of the seriousness of sin and the consequences of sin, what it deserves The wages of sin is death. That's not just a metaphor. That is reality. That is what our sin deserves. And in that time and place, Achan got the full penalty that his sin deserved, which was death. It had to be purged from the people in order for them to move forward with a holy God. Quite simply, without that repentance on behalf of the nation, the sin would continue to hold them hostage and would be a barrier to them being able to have success in taking Canaan. It's like the classic story, you've probably heard some version of it, of the little boy and his sister who went to their grandparents' farm for the summer. Now, while he was there, the little boy started playing with a slingshot, and with that slingshot, he started to hit tin cans and tried to aim for birds and things like that, but he could never hit them. And so he knew he was very unreliable with his slingshot, and so one day... Just on a whim, he aimed it at his grandma's goose. And he let it fly, and to his utter astonishment, he hit the goose in the head and knocked it over dead, on the spot. Well, he ran over, panicked, and he tries to hide what he has done. He covers it over with leaves, and he looks around, and he thinks he's gotten away with it. But then, coming around the corner of the barn, there is his sister. She's watched the whole thing, and she says to him, "'You killed grandma's goose.'" And I'm going to tell her. No, don't, he replied frantically. Well, she says, here's the deal. I won't tell if you do whatever I say the rest of the summer. Well, the boy had no choice. He quickly agreed, and she proceeded to make his life miserable. He did all her chores, and at nighttime, she would get his dessert. It was brutal. And finally, after weeks of this, he just couldn't take it anymore, and he cracked. He flung himself on his grandma's lap, and in tears, he said, I'm so sorry, I killed your goose with my slingshot. Oh, I know, came grandma's reply. The boy was shocked. How how did you know? Well, I watched the whole thing through the window, came her reply. As this registered on him, he, he finally asked her, Then why didn't you tell me? 
And the grandma replied softly, because I was waiting for you to come and tell me. You see, we don't confess our sins in order to inform God of what we did. God already knows. God knows everything. He knows even our inner thoughts, the meditations of our hearts. He knows all about them. But until we confess and repent, our sin holds us captive just as certainly as that sister made a slave of her brother. But thankfully, when we come to that point where we just can't take it anymore, we confess, we repent, it is God's desire to graciously forgive and restore through Christ and what he has done for us. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a promise that we can count upon. So number one, we must repent. There's no moving forward without it. Number two, the second key, remember that no, no matter how bad our failure, God never leaves nor forsakes his children. No matter how bad we mess up, God doesn't bail on us. He is still with us. Joshua chapter 8 and verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Now, do those words sound familiar to you at all? You see, after we have sinned, the devil loves to come alongside and to whisper in our ear, You know, you messed up big time. You're a failure. God could never use you again. In fact, God wants nothing to do with you now. However, God knew Joshua's dark thoughts. And so he specifically reminded Joshua of his original promise to him back in Joshua chapter 1 verse 9. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, I'm sure in this moment that Joshua was never more insecure of himself or his leadership. Right then, it was, it was the first test where he, Moses is gone, and it's all on him, and he's shaking in his sandals. What's going to happen? Am I going to be responsible for the demise of the people? And this is exactly why in that moment, he needed to be reminded that God was still with him, and he wasn't going anywhere. Despite the failure, God was with Joshua, helping give him the courage to face the consequences, do what needed to be done to repent in order to move forward, and then have that courage to step forward with the mission that God had given him. So remember, no matter how bad you think you've messed up, God isn't going anywhere, so long as we do number one, which is repent and turn to God so that we can restore that right relationship. The third key is another very simple, straightforward sort of a thing that many of us know but are not as good at doing. And that is we need to learn not to repeat the same mistakes. There's an old saying by George Santayana that goes, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Now let's look again at Joshua chapter 8 verse 1 as it continues with the Lord's instructions. He says to Joshua, take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. 
Now, though the primary cause of defeat at AI originally was Aiken's sin, a contributing factor was that they underestimated the enemy and overestimated themselves in that first attack, when they only sent 3,000 soldiers against the city, and they were soundly defeated and sent running. But now an important question from the text is this. Who told Joshua to send only 3,000 men? Who told him? Had he consulted the Lord? Had the Lord instructed him to send 3,000? No, if you look back at chapter 7, it wasn't God. It was Joshua's own human thinking. It's very easy to see his rationale. Well, we just took Jericho. AI's just a small two-bit town. We'll easily take it with only 3,000 men. You see, this was Joshua's first mistake. And that was that he did not seek the Lord in prayer before the next battle. Now, spiritually speaking, how often, how often have you fallen into the exact same sin the exact same way? If you look back at your own life and be honest, how many times have you fallen into the same snare again in exactly the same manner? Has it ever happened? It's happened to me more times than I care to admit. And so you see, when we go into spiritual battle without first seeking the Lord's battle plan, We are already defeated before the word go. You see, our enemy is cunning. He knows which snares are going to get us. And if we go in with only our own human thinking and reasoning, we're going to fall for them every single time. But this is where we see that Joshua has learned from his first mistake. Before he goes into battle next against Ai, he is now seeking the Lord and he is ready to follow God's battle plan rather than his own. Joshua learned not to repeat the same mistake. He sought the Lord, and he followed the Lord's instructions the second time around. Now this leads us, and it fits right in with the next key, key number four. We need to remember who the battle belongs to. The battle belongs to the Lord. It's not mine to own. It's not yours to own. It's the Lord's own. The battle belongs to him. And therefore, we are completely dependent upon God for each and every battle, whether big or small. Now, you see, a tendency is, this is my tendency, is we commit our big battles to the Lord. So, for instance, Joshua, Jericho, that was a big battle. He's seeking the Lord in prayer. He's praying about it. He's he's looking for the Lord to intervene. He knows he can't do it on his own. But then the very next battle seems small. Hey, I got this one. I don't need the Lord's help. I don't even need to pray. I'll just send 3,000 guys up and we'll do this. And you see, we need to guard against that. Every battle is the Lord's battle. Whether we think it's a big battle or just a small one, we need to commit it to the Lord in prayer. Let's continue in verses 1 to 2. The Lord continues with his instructions to Joshua. He says, For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its kings as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. Now, one thing that Joshua, one thing that he needed to understand crystal clear is that they needed God's power even for taking the small city of Ai. For you see, with the power of God, even mighty Jericho could be taken. But without the power of God, even the small Ai could not 
be taken. You see, for Joshua then and for us today, no matter the size of the battle, we are utterly dependent on God's power for any success. This applies to every sphere of our lives, from our relationships with our children, our wife, our co-workers, you name it. Whatever is going on, we need the Lord. Trying to do it on our own is a sure recipe for failure. And now we move on to key number five. Remember that God can transform our past failures into future victories. Now, there's no erasing the consequences of failure. The fact was that 36 men plus Achan and his family had lost their lives in the humiliating defeat at Ai. But what I think is amazing in this story is that God used that previous defeat as a springboard for future victory. In verses 4 to 7, Joshua tells his men the Lord's battle plan. He says to them, listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you, be on the alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city. And when the men come out against us as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city. For they will say, they are running away from us just as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. And so here we see a a classic strategy, a battle plan. One laid out by the Lord, which utilizes the Israelites' previous defeat to their advantage by deceiving the enemy and luring them into a trap. You see, God is even able to use our past failures to turn them into future victories. Now, that doesn't mean that we can avoid all of the consequences of our failures, just as Israel did. 36 choice warriors lost their lives because of it. But God changed all of that for the nation of Israel, and he can do it for us as well. In verses 14 through 22, it tells us how the plan worked out perfectly. Now, this slide is a little bit confusing, so I'm going I'm to walk through it for you. Here's how the battle goes. Now, here on number one, we have Joshua's forces advancing towards the city, setting up camp across from Ai. They see them across here, and so what happens next? Number two, they don't know that Joshua has an ambush force set up on the west side of the city that snuck in during the night. Then they make a show of their coming to attack. Number four, they come out from the city to meet them in battle, and Joshua and his forces make a hasty retreat, starting to head back this way. Now, of course, they say they're running just like last time. Send everyone out. And so this force continues to pursue. Number five, we see the rest of the forces of Ai. Everyone says, hey, we're going to run them down. We're going to cut them down. It's going to be a great slaughter. They leave the city unguarded. And here, number six, the ambush force moves in. They take the city. They seize it. And this is the critical point of the battle. For the signal for this was over here, Joshua raised his javelin. The men take the city. These men see the city beginning to burn. They turn to fight the enemies coming towards them. These men suddenly realize, hey, we're in a fight. They look behind them and they see their city on fire. The shock, the demoralization of realizing what they thought was a rout and a victory is just sinking in. And then on top of that, they see the forces moving out from the city, coming up, trapping them from behind, and now they have enemies on both sides of them, 
And the scriptures tell us it was a great slaughter. Not one of Ai's forces survived. Not one survivor of the battle made it away. They got every last one who tried to run. The only one taken alive was the king of Ai. Now just imagine that moment for those forces, thinking that they've won this battle. These Israelites are a bunch of cowards. We've got them on the run again. And then realizing that not only is their city on fire, they're trapped between two forces and are then cut down to the last man. They then return to the city of Ai and finish it off. Every last person put to the sword. Now this seems overly harsh and severe to us, but we must remember that just as with Jericho, God had pronounced his judgment against the inhabitants of Canaan, which included Ai. They had turned against God. They were wicked in his sight. They had turned to idolatry and every kind of carnal inclinations. And so God had pronounced his judgment against them. And he was using Joshua as the agent of his judgment against the people. And so he orders them to wipe out the wickedness, just as he had wiped out the wickedness on the earth during the time of Noah using the great flood. Only this time he used Joshua against the people of Ai. And verse 27 tells us then that at this time, God allowed them to take the plunder from the city. I'm sure Achan would have loved to have known that had he still been alive. This time around, you're allowed to take it. But that's the importance of following God in obedience. And finally, the city was made a heap of ruins. Its king was hung and left lying at the city gate. They mound up a pile of rocks over him and the entire city. And this victory for Israel was total and complete. And what I find fascinating is that in the previous battle, they recorded that 36 soldiers had been killed, yet in this battle, it doesn't record a single casualty, which leads me to believe they didn't take any. When God's hand was with the people, they simply didn't lose men. The victory was that complete and that devastating for their enemies. God had transformed the very site of Israel's past failure into a memorial of God's complete triumph over their enemies. You see, God wasn't finished with Israel or Joshua because of one failure. And thankfully, no matter how miserably you may have failed in the past, or maybe will yet fail in the future, God has not and will not give up on you. Nor has he finished using us either. I'd like to conclude today with a true story told of a time when New York City Corp Tower was completed in 1977. It was the seventh tallest building in the world, and it was hailed for its technical elegance and singular grace. This marvelous tower, when it was completed, was especially notable for its sleek aluminum sides and its provocative slash-topped design. Its designer and chief architect was a man named William J. Lemessier, who shortly after the tower's completion was elected into the National Academy of Engineering. But just one year after the tower's opening, as the result of some questions from one of his engineering students, Le Messier reassessed his calculations and he came to a frightening realization. His tower had a fatal flaw. You see, the problem was that during construction, Without Le Messier's approval, the joints in the steel superstructure had not been welded, but bolted together. Now, bolting the joints together was a common and acceptable practice. 
but it's not as strong as welding them together, which is what his calculations had included. And what made this a critical problem was that in Le Messier's original calculations, he had not taken into account the extra force put on the building from non-perpendicular winds, which were many times more powerful than what he had anticipated. He then calculated that the joint most vulnerable to such winds was on, of course, the 13th floor. If that single joint were to give in to the pressure and give way, that whole building would collapse in on itself as easily and quickly as someone could crush an empty aluminum can in their hand, just like that. He then talked with meteorologists and he learned to his horror that the winds required to buckle that 13th floor joint would come on average every 16 years. So this wasn't some obscure remote possibility, it was very real. Every 16 years, a wind would come strong enough to buckle his building. And his immense failure simply horrified him. This is a multi-million dollar, hundreds of millions of dollars invested in this building. How could he have made such a colossal mistake? Le Messier weighed his options. If he blew the whistle on himself... He knew he faced inevitable lawsuits, professional humiliation, and probably bankruptcy. He could also just stay silent and hope for the best. But the lives of everyone who set foot in that tower were at stake, and he knew it was his fault. At his darkest moment, he even considered taking his own life. But finally, after much painful soul-searching, he did the only thing he knew that was right. He informed all concerned of the fatal flaw, and he took full responsibility. City and corporate leaders received the news in a professional manner, and soon plans were drawn up to strengthen the joints by welding steel plates to them. When the work was completed some three months later, the building was then calculated to be strong enough to withstand winds greater than any ever recorded in the entire region. In fact, to this day, it is now considered one of the safest towers ever built. Yet the repairs cost millions of dollars. But despite his fears, Le Messier's career and reputation were not destroyed, but in fact enhanced. Had he remained silent or taken his own life, his failure would have forever defined him and his legacy. However, because of his courage to accept responsibility, and to move forward. In the end, it was William J. Le Messier's greatest failure that became the catalyst for what he is most remembered for and celebrated today. One engineer later commended Le Messier for being a man who had the courage to say, I got a problem. I made the problem. Now let's fix the problem. And in 2004, just before his death, Le Messier was elevated to National Honor Member of Chai Epsilon, the National Civil Engineering Honor Society for Lifetime Achievement. But even more importantly than the accolades and the awards, his story is still used in universities and colleges today as an ethical case study of doing what's right even when it could cost you everything. You see, my friends... From Adam and Eve's original failure, the great failure in the Garden of Eden, and on down the line, 
Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Peter, and Paul, right up until us today, God is a specialist in turning what we see as failures into stunning victories. And none greater than the cross of Jesus Christ. In that moment, the world saw a failed prophet, a failed rabbi, whose teaching was too radical, which led to his own early death and execution. His disciples believed it. Jesus had failed. He was not the Messiah they thought he was. And yet there on that cross of humiliation, God took that moment of shame and turned it into the symbol of triumph that we as Christians have stood under to this very day, the cross of Christ. It is God's victory over sin, death, and Satan once for all. God is a specialist in turning what look like failures into triumph and victory. And so today, be encouraged that whether you are facing some failure today or perhaps in the future, remember these five keys from the story of Joshua. When we fail, remember, we must turn to God in repentance. Secondly, we need to remember that no matter how bad our failure, God does not forsake his children. Thirdly, we need to learn not to repeat the same mistakes. Fourth, we need to remember that the battle belongs to the Lord, and so commit each battle to the Lord. And number five, remember that God can transform our past failures into future victories by his incredible providential power, wisdom, and grace. Amen. Heavenly Father, we worship you this morning for how incredible your power is to turn our failures and to spin them, Lord, through your incredible wisdom, your providence, your omniscience into something beautiful. That even though we must suffer the consequences for a season, Lord, with you there is grace, with you there is redemption, and with you there are stunning victories that we never would have thought possible, all because of who you are. And so we thank you, Lord, today that no matter what we are facing, whether our failure or someone else's that's got us down, when we commit our way to you, when we repent what we need to repent of, we seek your direction. You will guide us forward, and you can turn even what seems to be our greatest moment of failure into a moment of triumph and victory because of you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did that on the cross. We thank you that you did that, and you took what Satan thought was his greatest triumph and turned it into his greatest defeat when you made a spectacle of them on the cross, taking the sin of the world, ours included, on yourself, putting death to death once for all so that we need not die, that we need not pay the judgment for our sins the way that Achan did, but that instead we can receive forgiveness and grace, pardon in full for today and into eternity. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are able to do this in our lives as well. And so encourage us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.